Micah 5. We started in Micah chapter 4 and 5 a few weeks ago, and we said that this section is foretelling uh, of the coming kingdom of God in the future days, the millennial kingdom. And we're not going to cover all that again. Just a, a very quick and brief review. Chapter 4, one, verses 1 through 8, talks about the characteristics of the kingdom in that day, which in effect says the Lord is going to be the judge. He's going to be judging from Jerusalem, and he's going to be teaching the word of God, it says. We talked about that already. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 14, talk about events preceding the kingdom of God from in the past and up to the, the, the right in front of the kingdom of God. One would be the Babylonian captivity, for example. We talked about that. And also uh, Armageddon. And uh, once again, we covered that uh, in a couple of weeks ago. Tonight, however, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And we'll be, uh, we'll be looking at Israel's helpless judge and Israel's Messiah. Israel's helpless judge and Israel's Messiah. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 of Micah. He says there, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little or little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Originally I was going to try to cover chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, which is a unit of thought, but I ran into all kinds of issues in the first two verses, so I gave up on that and decided to just talk about the first two verses of Micah chapter 5. The background for the Messiah is found in, cha in chapter 5, verse 1. The Messiah comes out in verse 2 in a strong way. But the background's in verse 1. There's a contrast being made between a helpless judge of Israel and the Messiah himself. If you'll see it in verse 1, it starts off with the word now. That's been used twice already in chapter 4 to, to start a new paragraph. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. He says, now, why do you cry out loudly? Start of that unit of thought. Verse 11, he says, and now many nations have been assembled against you. And this is the third time he uses this in a row. So we have a, a new subject matter. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. The daughter of troops is describing the military of Jerusalem at this time in the, in the uh, uh, 8th century or so, 7th century. How do we know it's speaking of Jerusalem? Because the context of chapter 4 all the way to this point is led up to this talking about the city of Jerusalem. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. He, he talks about, in the latter part of the verse, from Zion, Zion is the city of God, Jerusalem, will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. Verse 8, he says, as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, once again. Verse 10, he talks about the daughter of Zion. Verse 11, our eyes are going to gloat over Zion. Verse 13, arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. And that is continuing on into chapter 5, verse 1. The, the city changes in, in, in verse 2 when he says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, changes from Jerusalem to, to Bethlehem. So Jerusalem is being called upon in verse 1 to muster their forces together, to gather their troops together to defend themselves. And the normal word for army is not used here. He uses the word troops instead because it seems at this time Israel has been weakened and their army is no, no great military. It's just troops, not a huge army of any kind. So he's talking about the smallness or the weakness of the army that Jerusalem has at this time. 
And he says, they have laid siege against us. Us is Jerusalem. They, the enemy, has laid siege against us. Now, he says, we're under attack from an enemy, enemy army. And by the way, a siege was no matter to be taken lightly. When he says we're under siege, that's, that's a, serious, uh, a serious situation. A siege is not someone, uh, an enemy, enemy army outside the walls shooting a few arrows that are harmlessly falling off the walls that they're attacking. That's not a siege. According to 2 Kings 17.5, when Assyria attacked the northern capital of Israel, Samaria, they had the city under siege for three years. For three years, they tried to break through the capital, and they finally did. So that could be a, a long time involved in a siege, a, a long, drawn-out affair. And every effort in a siege would be to cut off all the supplies from a city when, back in that day when they were trying to engage in war against an, another city. The city had their walls out there that defended them, and they would try to cut off all food supplies. They would try to cut off all water supplies. They would try to, uh, to uh, not make sure that the, the, the people inside the fortifications didn't have any access to water if they could. They would try to create uh, circumstances so there would, there would be a famine in that city. They could make them go hungry. So they would do all kinds of things like this. And then they would build a mound to reach up to the wall the walls of the city, and use battering rams to try to break through the wall. And that could take a long time. And you can imagine living in a city like this, and you're being under attack by an enemy army. And, you're, and they're out there pounding on your walls, and they're trying to threaten your food supplies, and they're trying to cut off the water supply. And, and, the, and everything is, is going to pot, and, and you're wondering, are they going to come in and get us? Can we defend ourselves? You can imagine how frightened you'd be in this situation. Uh, panicking even, and, and you see that in other parts of the scripture, how uh, famine and lamentations created a cannibalism uh, because of the famine that was taking place. So Micah tells the inhabitants of Jerusalem, defend yourselves. Well, who is laying siege to Jerusalem here? It doesn't say. It's a very good question because it says they have laid siege against us. You know, we, t we say, we talk about they all the time, you know, they did this, and you say, well, who's they? <laughs> And there's no answer. And, and Micah doesn't tell us who it is exactly. Now, many people think that he's talking about Assyria because Assyria was the major power at that time, which had a, a, an absolutely incredible military that just plowed cities over. And even though it took time, they would, they, would, they would get the job done. However, I don't see any evidence of Assyria laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. Why do I say that? Well, let me read to you 2 Kings 19. I'll just read this to you. Verse 32, 2 Kings 19:32. Uh, it says here, for out of, or it says here, rather, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. Now let me say this first. Assyria had laid siege to other cities in western Judah. But when they got to Jerusalem, God says this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He, this is the Lord saying this, the king of Assyria will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. And he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By, by the way that he came, by the same he will return. He shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. The Lord says, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So the Lord said, I'm not going to let the king of Assyria come up to Jerusalem and lay siege against it. It says it very plainly there. So I don't think it's Assyria. However, I do think it's probably Babylon. A hundred years later down the road in the future... I think Mike is talking about the future here. And because in 2 Kings 24, verse 10, and I'll just read this to you, it says there, 
At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem. This is about 100 years later after Micah's time. The city came under siege. There it is, siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And it goes on. So I think that he's talking about a little later on down the road, Babylon coming in, making a siege against Jerusalem. And so he says, we're just no match for these guys. Our, we only have troops. We don't have a full military. We're small, and we, don't, we just don't have it. And so then in Micah 5.1, it says, With the rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. The judge of Israel is no doubt a human king in Israel at this time. And one of the jobs that kings did back then was they, they, were, they judged the people. They made decisions, rendered decisions regarding certain issues that people would come to them about. Now, we probably don't see that fully because in our, in our government we have, you know, we have the three branches in our federal government, and so each branch is assigned to a different task. But back then the king did a lot of things, including judging. So he was involved in many areas of, of being a king, and one of those was judging. So what king is being spoken of? Well, the last king to reign before Babylon fell was Zedekiah. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that. And it says here, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel, probably talking about the king of Israel, on the cheek. And to be smitten on the cheek meant to be humiliated. It meant to be um, insulted. It meant to treat someone shamefully. And whoever this was, this king, probably Zedekiah, he would be treated shamefully. He'd be insulted, mistreated, humiliated before all. Lamentations 3.30 uses that phrase. It says, let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. And so the person that would be smitten on the cheek would be one who would be reproached. He'd be humiliated. Well, if you'll turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 52, we can see what happened here to Zedekiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 3. And you can see what took place here. Jeremiah 52, verse 3. Look at the, the, the last phrase in the verse, Jeremiah 52.3. It says, And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, rebelled against the king of Babylon. He was under his authority to some degree this time, and he rebels against Babylon. Verse 4, Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, and so on, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem, and camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, see, they tried to wipe out their food supplies, that there was no food for the people of the land. <clears throat> then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled and went forth from the gate, from the city at night, by way of the gate, between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went up by way of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah. Zedekiah is on the run, trying to get away. But they overtake Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. <clears throat> Look what they do to Zedekiah. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he also slaughtered all the princes of Judah and Riblah. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah. And the king of Babylon bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. 
He was disgraced. And many people think, many commentators think that Zedekiah is the king, is the one who was humil- humiliated and was smitten on the cheek by, in, in, in the idea of being humiliated. This was the fate of Israel's helpless judge, helpless to defend himself, helpless to do anything to help his cause, weak and in a weakened condition, being besieged by the mighty power of the time, Babylon, and he fell to that. Why did this happen? Well, this is what sin will bring upon people. Because Israel had sinned against God in many ways, God allowed all this to happen. He allowed Babylon to come in, to take them over, to capture them, to put them in seven years of captivity. This is the judgment of God on sin. And this is what sin will do to any of us, even believers. And God will, don't, don't think that God won't judge the sin of believers as well. He will. Believers who have gone astray, who are sinning, we won't get away with that. Sin's going to bring us absolute misery. It's, it's going to bring harm upon others. Look at how Zedekiah and his kingdom and others affected the whole city of Jerusalem and all of Israel and all of the southern kingdom. We're going to suffer for sin. Others close to us may suffer for our sin. Because of what we've done, we say, well, it's not going to hurt anybody. But the fact of the matter is sin hurts everybody, ultimately, and hurts many that we love. And so they felt the effects of the sin of Israel. Everybody did. The kingdom of Israel was totally defeated because of their sin against God. That is the weak, helpless judge of Israel. And then in verse 2, Israel's Messiah. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, little among, to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth, goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. There's a contrast here, first of all, between the human king in verse 1 and the, the Messiah. A sharp contrast between the helpless, weak, uh, rebellious king, <clears throat> Zedekiah, in Judah, and the powerful Messiah who is to come, the strong Messiah of, of Israel who is to come. The earthly king in verse 1 is under siege. He's defenseless. He's helpless. He's, he's humiliated. He's a puppet king under Nebuchadnezzar. But then you have the Messiah coming in who's going to be the ruler, it says. Different word from the word judge in verse 1, by the way. A ruler overall. Now, you might think, well, didn't Jesus suffer humiliation too? And he does. The scripture says in, when his, his first coming that in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself and became obedient even unto the death of the cross. And he was rejected by this, that generation in that time in, the, in his first coming. He was humiliated on the cross, completely humiliated. But the humiliation of Christ was not due to his rebellion, was not due to his sin. Unlike Zedekiah, Jesus never sinned, never did anything wrong, never had a wrong thought, or never had a wrong attitude, never committed a wrong action of any kind. Jesus was the perfect, sinless son of God. He never sinned. But some people think that some people think that the Messiah is the king in, in verse one, but I, I don't believe that's the case for one reason I just mentioned he didn't rebel or anything like that. But furthermore, uh, verse one is talking about a military attack, and the the king would be smitten on the cheek, and Christ was never involved in a military attack, for one thing, not smitten by an enemy nation either. He was crucified on the cross, but that's a different story. So I don't think that's who it is. I think. The king in verse 1 is probably Zedekiah, and the Messiah definitely in verse 2. Now let's talk about the origins of the Messiah in verse 2. Say, or, we use the word origins, and that may not be a good word at all, but just to, so we can all understand what I'm talking about here. Where will the Messiah come from? That's what verse 2 tells us. 
Well, two different aspects of his origin are actually presented here in verse 2. First of all, his birthplace. It says, but as for you, Bethlehem, uh, a ruler is going to come from you. And, and notice there's a strong contrast with the word but. Not only is there a strong contrast between the capabilities of the two kings, the weak king in verse 1, the strong Messiah in verse 2, but also between the two cities. <clears throat> you have Jerusalem in verse 1, and, and, and then the next, the next verse doesn't talk about Jerusalem. It talks about Bethlehem. Jerusalem was the city with the bright lights. Bethlehem was nothing. But he says here, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, why does it say Bethlehem Ephrathah? Well, because there was two cities called Bethlehem in Israel. One of them was uh, from the tribe of Zebulun. Joshua 19 talks about it. And there was one in Judah. Uh, by the way, Ephrathah means, uh, fruit, or means uh, fruitful. Bethlehem means house of bread. So it's probably a fertile area. Uh, that they were in there. But Bethlehem, uh, the one that we're talking about here, was only five or six miles from Jerusalem. And the other one was much further away. Ephrathah is the district where Bethlehem was. So when he said that, everybody knew, oh, yeah, it's the one near Jerusalem. They all knew that. They could, they could pin it down. And he says, and, and the way he, just, he talks to Bethlehem, it's like talking to a person. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, I've got a message for you. You know, he, he did that before. In chapter 4, verse 8, he's talking to, to Jerusalem. He says, as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, and he gives them this personal message. But now he uses this you in describing Bethlehem. It's a very emphatic word. The Lord is now highlighting the city of Bethlehem for a certain reason. For the time being, Jerusalem is not in the limelight. In fact, they're on the decline at this time. They're being weakened because of their rebellion against God. But why does the Lord highlight Bethlehem here? Uh, well, we'll look at that in a second, but the next line shows us the status of this town. He says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you're little to be among the clans of Judah. How important was Bethlehem to Israel and Judah? Not at all. It was not important whatsoever at all. When you think of the word Bethlehem, think of the word to associate with it, littleness. They were little. <clears throat> they were insignificant. They had an inferior status among the towns of Judah. They were weak. They were small. Nothing about it at all. I mean, it was meaningless. It was small physically. It carried no uh, status socially. Um, in Israel, all their tribes were divided into families and clans and with a leader over each. But when the territory, it's interesting, when the territory of Judah is divided up in Joshua 15, by the way, you'll not see the, the city of Bethlehem mentioned there at all. Why? It wasn't important at all. And when the people come back from the Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah lists the cities where the people are going to live. Guess what's not listed? Bethlehem. Just an insignificant place. When, you know what John 7.42 John says about Bethlehem? Listen to this. John 7:42 Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? It's just a village, just a hamlet, just a small town. There's not much to it at all, not important at all, no kind of prominence at all. It's just maybe the kind of town that you see one stoplight on your way through it. You know, you've been through, you've been through places like that on 301 if you go to St. Augustine. You'll go through a place called Bushnell. You ever heard of that? Palatka? Not many people have heard of that. Why? 
There's nothing there. It's a, and totally insignificant. If you're from, from Palatka or Bushnell, forgive me, but you're, you're living, quite honestly, in a totally insignificant town. That's where you're from, okay? There's not much to it at all. So this is how Bethlehem was. Compared to Jerusalem, with all its magnificent buildings, Bethlehem was nothing at all. It's just a little hamlet. Micah 3.10 talks about, remember when we were talking about Micah 3.10, it talks about the, uh, the people were building Zion with bloodshed. In other words, at, at the cost of people's lives, they were building the city, maybe with slaves or whatever. Somebody said about that, that building program in Zion when, they were, when violence was part of that, they said it was urban renewal with a vengeance, a new Jerusalem that cost, cost the lives of men. And archaeology has confirmed that. They've confirmed that Jerusalem had a great big building program going on. Like I said, that's where the city lights were. That's where the action was. Bethlehem, no. You've heard the Christmas carol, Oh, little town of Bethlehem? That's what it was, a little town. Not much to it at all. So Bethlehem would be the last place you would go to try to find any kind of leadership for the government. If you're going to look for a leader in the government or someone to lead in general, you're going to probably go to Jerusalem. You're not going to Bethlehem. Oh, by the way, there's a great guy in Bethlehem down there I've come across that's got great potential for leadership. You're not going to do that. But, that's what you, but he singles out Bethlehem here. Why? Because look what it says. You're little, you're insignificant, Bethlehem. You're small, and you're not important. You're not prominent at all. But, he says, from you, one will go forth to me to be ruler in Israel. To be ruler in Israel from Bethlehem. You know, this is one of the few verses in Micah that's quoted in the New Testament. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, and this is where you can run into some serious problems. (laughs) Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. And we'll talk about this somewhat, not exhaustively. Um... It's a, a project for another day. Matthew chapter 2. Somewhat, though. It says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, <clears throat> for this is what has been written by the prophet. What prophet? Micah, right? Here's the quote. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the tr- leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let me ask you, first of all, an observational question here. Mike's teaching observation method. He's teaching how to study the Bible. And what's the first thing you do when you study the Bible? First step. I just gave the word. (laughs) Observation, right? Yeah, you ask questions of the text. Who's speaking in this context? Who's being spoken to? Where's this taking place at? What's happening? What are the circumstances in history, et cetera, et cetera? So you ask those questions. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. Who is giving the answer to Herod's question, where's the, where was the, uh, where's the Messiah to be born? Who's answering him? Yeah. 
Verse 4, the chief priests and the scribes. Verse 5, they, the chief priests and the scribes, say, here's the answer. He's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And then they give the quote from Micah chapter 5. So Matthew, who's often blamed for this quote, is simply reporting what the chief priests and scribes are saying is what in the way of an answer, okay? They're saying that. Now let me ask you, let me tell you something else. The study of the New Testament use of the Old Testament is very interesting and it's very there's many things involved in this. But let me just say this. Sometimes or when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it doesn't do it word for word all the time. In fact, most of the time it doesn't do it word for word. Sometimes <clears throat> a New Testament writer paraphrases an Old Testament quote. So if it's not exactly right, and you look at that and you say, wait a minute. Sometimes he's paraphrasing the quote. Sometimes he's summarizing more te- several texts from the Old Testament into, into one quote. He's quoting from Jeremiah and maybe Mike and somebody else, and he puts it all in one quote. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes he quotes from a context of the Old Testament text. <clears throat> he's quoting the context of a passage in the, in the Old Testament instead of just one verse exactly. Sometimes... The writer of the New Testament is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I'm sorry if I'm not, I'm trying to keep this simple. The, the Septuagint, he's quoting from a Greek translation of the Old Testament, not from the Hebrew text. Oftentimes that happens. That's why you see a different word. You say, what's going on here? Sometimes he's quoting from the Greek translation. It's kind of like if I was reading out of the NASB up here, New American Standard, and you have your English Standard Version open in your lap or your King James or New King James or whatever you use, and you're looking at that and you're saying, how come is Mark's translation reads a little different? It's just a, it's a translation, and so you're going to have different wording like that. So it's a big subject. Entire books have been written about this subject of the New Testament use of the Old. So understand, keep that in the back of your mind. So he says here that the, fair, the chief priests and scribes say this, and by the way, I, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here either when I'm about to say. I really don't because this is a little bit tricky. <laughs> but he says here, they say, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah... What did Micah say about Bethlehem? What did he call it? He called it Bethlehem Ephrathah, right? So why did these guys say, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah? Well, basically, it's not a big issue. He's saying much the same thing. Judah's the region in which Bethlehem was located. The people would know. They, oh, that's right. That's the south, like Ephrathah. That's right. That's the one near Jerusalem, five or six miles away. We know what you're talking about. We got it. So it's not a big deal. They would understand that. Here's the problem I have. The next line is the problem. The Pharisees, Pharisees, I'm going to keep saying it. The chief priests and the scribes say this. Bethlehem, land of Judah, you are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. You are by no means, and that's exactly what they say here, you are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. That's That's the real issue I have here because Micah said something that was totally different. He says, you are little among the clans of Judah. These guys say, you're not the least among the leaders of Judah. Understand, these are the chief priests and the scribes quoting Micah 5.2, okay? Not Matthew or anybody else saying that. Let's just, first of all, think of that. <clears throat> so why? Why say it this way? Well, there's a lot of reasons people get for this. <laughs> but one reason could be that, you'll, that Herod had selected Bethlehem as a site for one of his palaces. In history, he had selected that, and he was going to build a palace there for some unknown reason. I don't know why. 
And it could be the Jewish religious leaders were being politically correct and trying to flatter King Herod by saying this. I want you to know, Herod, by the way, Bethlehem is a great place. (laughs) You're going to build a palace there. We know about that. So uh, we want to flatter you. And that could be it. I don't know. It doesn't say that. We're not given the reason here, by the way, exactly. This is somewhat speculative here. (laughs) By the way, you're saying I know what it is. It's because he's quoting from the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's not it either. Because the Septuagint says the same thing as the Hebrew does. It says you're little among the tribes of Israel, the cities of Israel, basically. So that's not it. It seems to me when I look at this, it seems that they're putting an interpretive spin on this thing. They're making an interpretation. They're saying, look, King, you're asking where the Messiah is going to be born. Micah 5.2, the prophet says, you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who's going to shepherd the people of Israel. It seems like they're interpreting the verse instead of observing the facts of the verse. They're saying, because we're, we're saying now that, or they're saying now that, look, Messiah is going to be born here. So therefore, since the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, you're not the least. You're actually a great, a great place now. You've been honored because the Messiah is going to be born here. So I, it looks like an interpretation to me. However, that's not what Micah said exactly. That's the problem I have, not what Micah said. They're putting their spin on it a little bit. And so I do want to make a point here, and I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. And by the way, this is something for further study too. Whatever the reason they said this, we need to keep one thing in mind. This is The word of God is God's holy word. It's inspired, and we cannot treat it flippantly or lightly. We can't do that. We have to, to understand what it's actually saying, and we can't just put our spin on things because we think. We think it means this. We think it means that. Well, what does the Scripture actually say? So when you go to the Scripture, let's treat it carefully and look at the facts of what it says and then base our interpretation on that and not just throw out a, because it's popular to say it, throw out an interpretation. Have you heard that? You heard interpretations? I've heard verses interpreted that, because it's the popular thing to do. Keep interpreting it that way even though it's wrong. Interpret it that way anyway because it's popular. Can't do that either. We've got to be careful with the Word of God. Do what Paul says. By the way, can't interpret a verse because it fits your theological system either. My system says things have to be this way in the Bible. Therefore, everything in the Bible has got to fit in my little box because this is my theological system. Can't do that either. We've got to come to the Word of God, and if it breaks our system apart, so be it and accept what the Word of God says in actuality. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy? We do our best to show ourselves approved to God, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of Truth, right? We accurately handle the Word of Truth. And I don't know what these guys were doing here exactly, but I do want to say this, be careful how we handle the Scriptures. And then they say, they go on to say, you're by no means least among the leaders of Judah, once again, maybe an interpretation they're putting on it. He ends by saying that the ruler is going to shepherd Israel in the Matthew quote, which, by the way, Micah 5.4 talks about him shepherding Israel. So he's, once again, quoting from the context there probably. And so be careful about how we interpret things. Now, having said that, let's go back to Micah chapter 5. And I want to say this. I don't want to sound like I've just contradicted everything I just said. (laughs) Understand what I'm saying here. He says, out of, though you're little among the clans of Judah, Bethlehem, yet out of you is going to come forth a ruler, uh, one who's going to be ruler in Israel. And I want to say this, and by way of application, 
Yes, we need to be careful how we interpret the scriptures, how we quote them, how we look at them, how we handle them. But we also want to get an application from this. Francis Schaeffer years ago wrote a book called uh, a, a Presbyterian uh, Minister years ago. Uh, you may know of him. Uh, he wrote a book called No Little People, No Little Places. The title itself just says it all to me. No Little People, No Little Places. Bethlehem was little, insignificant, and small, and yet what did God do? This is how God works. Just to show you how God works. What did God do? Did he have Christ be born in Jerusalem in the uh, temple somewhere? No. You know the story. He was born in Bethlehem under hard and difficult circumstances. And God used Bethlehem as a place for Christ to be born. This is how God works. When, when the Philip said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is nothing at all. Can anything good thing come out of Nazareth? Who was associated with Nazareth? Nazareth. Jesus, right, of Nazareth, it says. And so the Lord use, uses places and he uses people, even though we're insignificant. And maybe you think to yourself, well, God can't use me because I'm small and little and insignificant and I can't, I don't have education and I don't have opportunity like some people here have had and I don't have uh, abilities and I'm not an upfront person, an outfront person and these kind of things. But God can use anyone in this room regardless of who you are. You say, well, I'm just insignificant. Nobody even knows who I am. And I'm telling you, God is, you're the person that God wants to use because of that. Because why? Because God will get the glory out of that situation. He'll get the glory. And so we come to him, and we want to be humble before him. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 126 is a great, is a great verse. 1 Corinthians 126 through 29. Let me read this to you. It says this. For consider your calling, brethren, <clears throat> that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. In other words, when God called people to be his own, he didn't call the noble and generally speaking, he didn't call the noble, wise, and the mighty. It says, but God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world <clears throat> and the despised. How about that? God uses the despised people. You like that? He's, he's chosen to the despised and the, the things that are not so that he might he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. There it is. Why does God choose the insignificant people? Why does he choose the little people to do his work? Because he'll get all the glory. He'll get all the glory. God will use those who are humble before him, and he won't use those who are proud. The scripture tells us that in many places. So God, yeah, God chooses the little places, like Nazareth, like Bethlehem, out of the way. He chooses the little people to serve him and to make an impact for him. That's the ones he works through. Micah 5.2 says, You're little among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth to be ruler for me in Israel. He says, for me. The Messiah is going to be coming out and doing the will of God. He's going to be doing it for me, for God. He's going to do this for God. He's going to be serving God. He's going to be doing the will of God. The reason he's coming out is to fulfill the purpose that God gave to him to do. He's going to be doing it for the Lord. <clears throat> Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John chapter 4. And then in a quotation from Psalm 40, another quotation Hebrews, that Hebrews 10 quotes, it has the Messiah saying this, 
Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. <clears throat> this is the purpose for when the Messiah coming, to do the will of God. In the gospel accounts, you see that when Jesus prays for God's will to be done. And even though he's suffering, he doesn't take the easy way out. Even though he's going to face the cross, he doesn't take the easy way out. This is the will of God to go to the cross, and he does it. And it says here he's going to be ruler in Israel. He's going to be the one who, to reign and have dominion over. And, this is going to, and there's going to be a day coming when this happens. When this happens, the kingdom, he's going to be reigning and ruling. And this is in contrast, once again, to the weak ruler in verse 1, the weak Zedekiah. There's no comparison between the two. What Zedekiah could not accomplish, the Messiah will accomplish in the coming days. He was re- By the way, and we said earlier, the rule, this ruler, this Messiah, was rejected in his first coming. And the, when he comes again, he's not going to be rejected. When he sets up his kingdom on earth, he's not going to be rejected. He's going to rule and reign. And that, off, that, that promise of God still stands. Now notice, secondly, not only his birthplace, but his goings forth. We'll use that phrase, his goings forth. It says in verse 2, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Goings forth is in the plural here, although some English translation, translations put it in the singular. It's not really accurate. It's plural because it's speaking of more than one going, going forth. And there's a debate as to where the, the Messiah came from here. Is it, is it talking about eternity, or is he talking about the line of David, <clears throat> to summarize the whole debate here? Well, I've looked at both these phrases where it says long, he's from long ago, he's from days of eternity. Both phrases are used of a time in history or for eternity. In both ways they can be used. And I don't think he's referring to one or the other. I think he's referring to both, eternity and from points in history, because he says his goings forth, plural. Charles Feinberg says the Messiah's goings forth, plural, are from eternity and in his appearances to the patriarchs through the line of David and throughout the Old Testament history of redemption. So his goings forth are from eternity and continue into history. And I think both are true. But just two, briefly, two aspects of his goings forth. <clears throat> First of all, eternity. It says his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. So by the way, the word eternity can be translated either antiquity or ancient times or eternity, just so you'll know, okay? The NASB chose eternity, ESV chose something else, but it can be translated either way. But since the point is this, since the Messiah is God, his goings forth are from eternity, for one thing. That's no secret to us, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God, right? What did Jesus say in John 8, 58? He says, before Abraham was, I am, right? He's been from eternity. We know that he's from eternity first and foremost. He's Lord of time and eternity. He's not a, he's not a creation of God, as the Jehovah Witnesses say, but he is the creator, God himself. So he's from eternity. And then he's from the line of David as well. Is the, other, is the other main point I, w- I wanted to bring up. And we know that in history, the Messiah came through the line of David. The family of David was from Bethlehem, by the way, same place where the Christ was born on earth. And the Lord told David in 2 Samuel that his house and kingdom would endure until, you know, forevermore, it says. And he told David, your throne will be established forever. And when Matthew 1.1 starts off in the New Testament, what does it say right away? The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. By the way, connects him with, through that line, the son of Abraham. And the message of Gabriel to Mary in Luke chapter 1, basically he says the Lord God will give to his son, Jesus, the throne of his father David. 
So he's going to be the one to come and to rule and to reign. He's from eternity. He comes through history. He appears to, the angel of the Lord appears to patriarchs, and he comes through the line of David. And so both are true. His goings forth are from eternity and in history. Well, one of God's purposes in the Bible to show is to show the weakness of man and to show the true nature of man, totally depraved, sinful, wicked, prideful, often has wrong motives, and yet he's utterly dependent upon God completely. Because this is how, this is how we are. This is how man is. But God's desire is that we might exalt his son Jesus Christ, as is done here in this passage. Not, not some man or some king. And who does he use to do this, to exalt his son? He uses the meek and the lowly. He uses those who are humble before God. He uses those who bow before God and, and give him themselves in order to be used of God. That's why he used Mary to bear the Son of God. Read the testimony of Mary in Luke chapter 1. He chose someone who was no one knew about, humble person, and one who was totally committed to God and loved God. Nobody knew about her at all. And yet he used this humble woman to bear the Son of God. Insignificant woman. Do you want to be, let me ask you a question in closing. Do you want to be used of God? Do you want to be used of God? It's not going to be the proud person that's used of God. It's not going to be the one who's arrogant that's used of God. It's going to be the one who's humble before God, as the Scripture says over and over again. Humble before God. Don't promote yourself, ever. Just seek to exalt Christ alone. You know, sometimes, even in testimonies, people give. And I know about this because I used to hear testimonies all the time at a certain organization we're not going to refer to right now, Canadian pronunciation of that word, by the way. But I used to hear testimonies all the time, and people in their testimonies about Christ would end up exalting themselves. I would hear this, look what I did. I did this for God. I did that for God. And I thought to myself, and we called, we called them testimonies after a while because we kept hearing this. So I'm not saying all testimonies are, are that way, but I've heard plenty of them in the past that were. And sometimes we claim credit for ourselves, even in a testimony we're giving allegedly about God and Christ. Be careful not to promote yourself. Only desire for God to be glorified, right, and for Christ to be exalted. Even if your name is never mentioned, even if you never get credit, even if no one ever pats you on the back and says, great job, you're serving the Lord, that's not the issue. The issue is we humbly serve the Lord, and we, want, we just want to, look, Bethlehem should remain an insignificant little city. But the Christ is not insignificant or little, right? He's to be exalted. So we want to glorify God. So keep this in mind. God uses little people, and God uses little places. Why? So that we might glorify him. Let's pray. Lord, you thank you for this, your word tonight. Pray that uh, we will be humble before you, that we'll put aside any arrogance or pride or any, any self seeking and that we'll do what we do because it's the will of God, because it's the right thing to do, because it honors you, and we'll do it in the power of the Spirit. And we just praise in Christ's name. Amen.